please turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Jonah. And if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles on the back table. We would love to give you one. It would be our gift to you if you don't, if you don't have one. Uh, but we are going to be spending the next four weeks, including this weekend, uh, beginning a journey, uh, plumbing the depths <laughs> of this fishy tail. We're going to dive head first. I trust it'll go swimmingly. I mean, how many more? I'm not going to do it any. <laughs> so we're not off to a good start. Oh, no. Rim shot. Patat. All right. So the story of Jonah, as, as, as is well known, I mean, is, is one of the most widely known in all of the Bible in, in terms of stories, right? But just because it's widely known does not mean that it's well understood. There are a lot of misconceptions, uh, common misconceptions about the book of Jonah. And so by way of an introduction, I kind of want to try and clear up a few common misconceptions before we go any further, okay? So the first misconception as you're flipping to the the book of Jonah, which is in the Old Testament, um, is this. While the main plot line of this story is simple enough for children to understand, which, which makes it a very popular children's church story across the world, the book of Jonah, though, is 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 rightly regarded as a work of literary genius, this book is intense, and, and we, we aren't absolutely sure who wrote it, but many scholars maintain that it was written by the main character, Jonah, as kind of an autobiogra- autobiography of sorts. But whoever wrote it, listen, if we were to be able to translate the, the Hebrew, go directly to the original language, whoever wrote it had an expert grip on the, on the Hebrew language, and, and with his poetic use of words and word pictures and double entendre, this is not your run-of-the-mill children's story, okay? So I praise God that it's simple enough for children to understand. I love that about the Bible, that the main message of the Bible is clear enough for literally anyone to understand. But man, the book of Jonah is layered with meaning, there's, there's more than just one point to this book. It's not just about a guy who gets swallowed by a big fish, as we will see over the next four weeks. Now, the second common misconception about the book of Jonah is that it's a work of fiction, that it, that it actually didn't happen. Now, I get that it's not every day that we're flipping through our phones on the news feeds and we read a story of a guy being swallowed by a giant fish. I, I get that. But it doesn't mean that it couldn't or didn't happen. In fact, there's a whole team of modern scientists who are committed to the probability that Jonah was very likely swallowed by a great white shark. And I'll tell you why. First of all, the text never, it doesn't say anything about a whale. It says a big fish or a giant fish, a sea creature. Now, the interesting thing about the, 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 the great white shark is that they can swallow a person whole. Did anybody watch Shark Week this, 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 this year? I mean, there's, there is now a 20-footer called Deep Blue that would swallow this whole room without even thinking twice. Secondly, there are three compartments to its belly. The first compartment where Jonah would have gone in has some levels of oxygen in it. There are no digestive juices. There are no muscles that are contracting. It's literally just a holding cell. Okay, so it's very probable that someone could survive for, a, for a, an amount of time 
within the, 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 the belly of a, as scary as it sounds, a great white shark. Okay, so there's three stomach chambers. That's the science. But more than just biological reasons, we at Substance Church, we affirm the historical truthfulness of the book of Jonah. Firstly, because the author of this book himself roots the story in history. We haven't even read it yet, but look at verse 1, that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Jonah, the son of Amittai, is the actual name of an actual prophet who ministered in Israel, according to 2 Kings chapter 14, during the reign of, again, rooted in history, King Jeroboam II. You can check history books on this. Not even Christian history books. Okay, so the prophets, as Jonah was, were messengers of God. So God would deliver to the prophets a word, and the prophets would take that word and go to whomever God asked them to, to, to speak to. In this case, in Jonah's case, he was called to go and deliver a message to the Ninevites in the book of Jonah. So here's the question that we have to ask in debunking a common misconception of its fiction-esque state. Is this, why would the author of this book present an actual name of an actual prophet who goes to an actual historical place and we see actual historical results. Okay, so then fast forward to the New Testament in Matthew 12. Jesus himself speaks of the story of Jonah as if it really happened. Now that should clue us in a little bit. I mean, if Jesus thinks it really happened, we ought to think it really happened. Now, if Jonah, in the, in, the, in, the, in the non-fiction nature of the book of Jonah, is what's tripping you up, look, we, we have a lot more issues. Look, we follow a guy who was resurrected from the dead. He walked on water. He changed water into wine. Like, really, it, at the end of the day, if this is the big leap, you know, being swallowed by a fish and, and lasting for a few days, and I, I don't know what I can do for you. I'll just pray that the Holy Spirit helps in this situation, right? Now, the last common misconception... And our intro to the book of Jonah is that like the rest of the Old Testament, this story is somehow outdated and or irrelevant for our modern, enlightened, intellectual society. And this could not be further from the truth, okay? So there is a reason why, at Substance, we quote so often from 2 Timothy 3.16, because all of Scripture, it says, all of the Bible is breathed out by God himself. It is inspired by him. Every word, every jot and tittle is profitable to us for teaching, encouraging, correcting, and training us in righteousness to this end, that we would be made complete and equipped for life and ministry. I can assure you that what we will see over the next couple of weeks is that the book of Jonah is as relevant as you can get. It is a compelling piece of didactic history. That is the literary genre that this book falls into, meaning this, it is true, it really happened, and it can teach us a great many wonderful things if we lean into it. And today's word, today's first chapter, we're going to take the whole chapter, chapter 1, is, is, is sobering. It's a convicting chapter, believe it or not. And so let's read 
from Jonah, chapter 1. I hope by now, by God's grace, you found it uh, hidden in the middle of the Old Testament. I'm going to go ahead and read for us now. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the, man rode, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, by your Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive what you wish to say to us this morning. 
no one is here by accident. You desire to speak to each and every one, and we entrust, we, we believe that you will. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the most basic outline of what we've just read in Jonah chapter 1 is as follows, and these are my three points if you're a note taker. First, we're going to look at the command of God, and then we're going to look at the response of Jonah, and while that might seem like it really kind of encompasses this whole chapter, we really could do two points. I'm going to have a third. The third point is the mercy of appointed affliction. And I know that that sounds weird and all of you are probably thinking, we're, all right, we're out of here, we're going to blow this popsicle stand. And no, just hang out and, 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 and let me explain. Let us dive into this passage. Let's look at number one, the command of God. In verse one, we've just read, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, it's really important that we note this command of God because it is precisely this command that sets up the entire remainder of the story. It is, it is this command, it is to this command that Jonah responds with rebellion. All right, so the command, you know, God tells Jonah to leave Israel, to travel a great distance northeast to the pagan city of Nineveh, which was the, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. This is real history, folks. And there, Jonah is to declare to them a stern warning. He's to give them a word of impending judgment, this, this wicked and idolatrous nation of Nineveh. And the purpose of this warning, as is the purpose with every warning, that turn or God's judgment is going to fall, the purpose is that they would come to repentance, the Ninevites that they would receive, in fact, forgiveness. This is the command that God gives to Jonah. Now, to Jonah, it doesn't make, a, and maybe even to us, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't sound like fun. It, this, this call to Jonah to leave his homeland and to go to this horrible, wretched nation, it, it, it would include, for sure, potential danger. But nevertheless, this is what God commands Jonah. And we have to understand, before we understand anything else, God's divine prerogative, his divine right to make such a command. Genesis 1, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, they all make this explicitly clear, what I'm about to say. Whether in the heavens or on the earth, everything and everyone was created by God for God. Psalm 100, verse 3, know that the Lord is God, it is he who made us, and we are his, we are his people, we are the sheep of his pasture. What this meant for Adam and Eve, the first man and woman in the Garden of Eden, what this meant for Jonah, this, this truth that we belong to God, what this means for you and I is that we are not autonomous creatures, not a single one of us in this room is independent, self-governing in our being. We don't belong to ourselves, to put it in layman's terms. 
We belong to God, and God holds the divine prerogative, the divine right, the divine authority to tell us to live the lives, tell us how to live the lives he has given us. Now, this is not a popular message in today's culture especially. See, today's culture out in the community, nobody minds that we preach a loving creator God. Nobody minds when we preach a God who rides in the passenger seat or, or shotgun in the back seat of, of our lives. Nobody minds a God who's passive or soft like, like an inanimate teddy bear. Nobody minds a God who endorses all of our actions or who roots for us in all that we do, like, like a cosmic cheerleader, you preach a God like this and you can fill stadiums and call them churches. We don't mind the idea of God just as long as we are still ultimately in charge of our own lives. But if we preach a God like the one we actually see in the Bible who does as he pleases among the inhabitants of the earth and no one can stop his hand or question his ways, if we preach a God who holds absolute and utter authority over every molecule of the cosmos, if we preach a God like that, watch the crowds, just like Jonah, sail away to Tarshish like that. Now Jonah, being a prophet... Not only does he know this, he claims to be a fearer, a God-fearer to the sailors, to the mariners. That's not like the Seattle mariners, everybody, right? Being a prophet, he had already likely delivered many messages on behalf of the Lord. And up until this moment in his life, he has seemingly not had a problem obeying God's command to go and to preach. Now, it could be that up until this moment that we're reading about in the book of Jonah... It could be that up until this moment, moment, all of his prophetic assignments were easy ones. They were assignments that made sense to him. Jonah, go and tell the tribe of Benjamin to, you know, that, that, that my judgment is, is come. Okay, well, that's an easy one. That's, 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 uh, that's my home territory. I can, I can do that for you, Lord. No problem. But there was something about this, this particular assignment, this command from God, to Jonah, to go to Nineveh. There was something about this particular message and these particular people that Jonah could not stomach. And so it begs some questions before we even get into that. What are the areas in our lives where we sense God calling where we hear God's voice to go, where we see that our lives are not aligning with Scripture and yet we can't stomach the thought of doing what he's asked us to do. And let's not pretend that those don't exist in mass because they do. What are the commands that God is giving to you, brother or sister, that you are in the moment disregarding? What are the things that he's called you to that you just find too difficult or undesirable? Is there an apology that God is commissioning you to go and make to somebody that you've wronged? Is there a co-worker to whom 
God is sending you to actually preach the good news of Jesus and to stop just being a nice friend, which we need to start there, but we also need to give good news? Is there a long-time habit or a sinful pattern that God is calling you to break by the power of his Holy Spirit? It's unfathomable to me. There, There are places in my life that I'm still restricted by the same sins that I was struggling with 10 years ago. And so this message is, 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 is convicting to me. What about church? What about this? Are, are you as much of a gossip today as you were 10 years ago? Murdering brothers and sisters in Christ with your words? Uh, how about overindulgence? Uh, uh, con- consistently having too much to drink? Or materialism? We covered that one in the last series. <laughs> That one wrecked me. What about pornography? Let's call a spade a spade. Did you know that according to James chapter 4, that it is a sin when we fail to do what we know God is calling us and asking us to do? And you're not alone because, for goodness sake, Jonah was even a prophet. He should have known this, and yet he even failed to do and to obey God's command. And I'll tell you the reason why. Jonah failed to remember that the commands of God are always for our good. Always. Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect It refreshes the soul. How how good does that sound? The commands of the Lord are trustworthy. You should read through Psalm 119 as the psalmist just cries out, I want more and more and more of your commands because the more I obey your commands, I'm led into delight and abundant life. How many of us have tasted that? Rigorous obedience, just unlocking great joy. This is the ultimate root to why we don't, you and I, always obey God's commands. This is the ultimate root to why Adam and Eve disobeyed God. This is the root of why Jonah disobeyed God. It's because we're failing to remember that obedience to God always results in our joy and our ultimate well-being. Do we believe this word? Do we trust it? then let us show each other in our lives with radical obedience which transforms us into Christ's likeness and we become holy and set apart like we we ought to be. I played ice hockey all growing up, my favorite sport, and I had a particular coach who was so good at hockey, he was from Canada after all, that just automatically gets you like, yep, you're a, you're a hockey coach. That's good. You're in America, you're a hockey coach. So <clears throat> anyway, <clears throat> he was such a good coach that we, man, if he asked us to stand on our heads in the locker room, we would do it because we were certain it would turn out for our good. It would actually go well for us to listen and to trust him. Goodness gracious, this is why when God calls us to our own Ninevehs, we can go with great joy and willfulness because we can be certain that it will ultimately result in our good even if it means physical danger or difficulty. 
Those two aren't mutually exclusive. They're dance partners. But this is the very thing that Jonah isn't happy with. It's this command of God. And I know we've spent an awful lot of time on basically one verse or two verses. I know that. It's the command of God that Jonah should go to the wicked Ninevites to warn them of impending judgment that catapults, number two, the response of Jonah. The response to God's command to rise and go to Nineveh. We read in verse 3, Jonah does rise and he does go, but not to Nineveh. As the Jesus, I love this, the Jesus Storybook Bible is a household favorite in the Lawson home. And and the author, Sally Lloyd-Jones, words it this way, that Jonah bought a one-way ticket to not Nineveh. (laughs) He went in the absolute opposite direction, in the most naive attempt to flee the presence of the Lord. Like the Lord who holds the world in his hands, as if, like Jonah's thought was, well, on the western Mediterranean, that's where I'll get away from the Lord. Like, take notice of how dumb that sounds. Does it not? And then, and then take notice of how deceived Jonah is. He goes down into the ship's hull to sleep. Like a whole sermon series could be preached on the false rest and the false sense of peace we can feel even in the midst of complete disobedience to God. He sleeps like a baby apparently because the ship is wrecking and he's still asleep. It's as if Jonah has convinced himself that he is right and that God is wrong by asking him to go to the Ninevites. And we all do this. Let's not pretend that we do. We justify our own sin. We think we're smarter, wiser, and better than God every time we give in to sin. Every time a man approaches a computer to lust after pornography, it's saying, I know how to handle my joy better than you do, Lord. I know how to handle my happiness. I know how to make myself happy. You certainly don't know how. That's what's happening. Here's the thing. Jonah actually was convinced that God got it wrong. And we're going to look at the history behind why. He was convinced that he was actually doing a noble thing by going in the opposite direction. So right around this time, there was another prophet named Hosea. And God was speaking through Hosea. And Hosea was prophesying a very not fun message to Israel. And it was this. Israel would soon be destroyed, wiped out. And the Israelites, Jonah's people would soon be exiled. And all of this was certainly going to happen and be accomplished by the hands of the Ninevites. And sure enough, we read in 2 Kings chapter 17, that is exactly what happened. Check the history books. Israel is exiled northeast to Assyria at the hand of the Ninevites in 722 B.C., Here's the point. Jonah knew before he even went to Nineveh that his own people were going to be brought into ruin by the hand of the Ninevites. Now put yourself in Jonah's sandals. 
surely God got this mixed up. Surely God could not be offering these wretched, unclean, unrighteous enemy Gentiles, surely he could not be offering them forgiveness through repentance. But brothers and sisters, that is exactly what God was doing. Because with Jesus Christ, who would come centuries later, but God doesn't see time necessarily linearly, linearly like we do. We're not, he's not locked into space and time. Because with Jesus Christ, mercy ultimately triumphs over judgment. For Jonah, the thought that God would p- offer a pardon to the Ninevites was incomprehensible. Has anybody ever seen Minority Report where you can see like the future sins of people and then they're arrested before they do it? Jonah's kind of thinking that right now. What are you doing offering these Gentile scum, these murderous scum who are going to come and destroy Israel, what are you doing offering them forgiveness and a chance to repent right now? And the Apostle Paul, he thinks about these things in Romans 9, later on in the New Testament. He ponders this relationship between Jew and Gentile. And he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part to do this? By no means is there injustice on God's part. For God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So like Adam and Eve and like Jonah, some of us in the room, all of us at some point in time, we might have our reasons for walking in disobedience to God and they might even seem admirable or defensible. Well, I didn't pay all of my taxes. I didn't claim all of my assets because I want to use this money for generous things. See how we can so quickly create a loophole where we disobey God for our own advantage, claiming it under his name like it's some sort of noble noble virtue, and all the while we are blindly disobeying him. Sure, I mean, we're going to get married anyway. I'll I'll start sleeping with my girlfriend now. Are you kidding me? Are we kidding ourselves? We can have our reasons for disobeying God and they might seem defensible, but at the end of the day, what we are missing out on in our disobedience is that it is ultimately going to lead us. It, is, it may not today. You may get to enjoy your sin today, but it will ultimately lead you to destruction and not joy. Let's look at number three, the mercy of appointed affliction. I'm going to cut to the chase. The storm was no accident. The sailors were not random. The casting of lots, which is just an ancient way of saying the rolling of dice, was not by chance. The giant fish was not Mother Nature. Psalm 135, verse 6, The Lord does whatever he pleases in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and in their depths. Even the wind and the waves obey him. God caused the storm to nearly wreck the ship in verse 4. You can see it with your own eyes. God appointed the fish 
to swallow Jonah in verse 17. You can see it with your own eyes. What about the casting of lots in verse 7? It doesn't say anything about that, that this was all left up to chance. No, no, no. Proverbs 16.33, man may cast the lot, they may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. Even something as random as the, as the rolling of dice is commanded by God. So it begs the question, why the storm? Why the fish? Why this, Lord? Sometimes God allows us to face temporal affliction in order to save us from eternal destruction. For those who in their rebellion are sprinting to their deaths, it is nothing less than magnificent, mysterious mercy that God would commission a shipwreck to stop them in their tracks. If Jonah's rebellion would have ultimately led him to death, if he were just to rebel and rebel and rebel and just get away with all of it, it would have led him to destruction. So how majestically and marvelously marvelously merciful was it for God to say, nope, I love you too much. Your ship is now wrecked. And this fish, you're now in its belly. I'm going to stop you where you are. The fish, as one commentator put it, was divinely appointed to rescue Jonah, not punish him. The fish was appointed to help, not to hurt. Jonah was rebelling. He was was running. He was thinking, I can get away from God, which is absurd. Sin makes you stupid like this. But God said, no, 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 no. I love you too much to let you do that. I will not let you perish in this rebellion. When God's people run from him in disobedience, he uses whatever is necessary, even a hungry fish, to bring us back. Now, is this an easy word or a pleasant word? No. But but are these appointed afflictions, are they not mysteriously effective in stopping us and refocusing us and redirecting us back to the kingdom of heaven? They absolutely are. I tell, I, I've told this story to you before and, I, and my, wife, my wife Lindsay does not love this story but I'm a sinful father and Even I have this concept down where I told my son Bray when he was about two years old, stop climbing on that step stool. He was about three feet high. Stop climbing on that step stool because if you keep climbing on high things that you can't control, you're going to end up falling off. Stop. So guess what I ended up doing? I let him fall. I am such a jerk, Dad. But I let him fall. I let him experience temporary pain to save him from eternal pain later on, and I'm not trying to blow that out of proportion, but that he would learn to trust my voice. Bray, do not do that. There is pain at the end of that road. Now, if I'm a sinful dad, finite dad, and I have the ability to do that with my son, how much more does an infinitely wise and loving God have that prerogative over us, his children? 
Look, oftentimes as Christians, we may not understand why our Christian brother or sister or even us has been struck with cancer. But I can tell you something. There, there is a mysterious rejoicing that can be done in the midst of atrocities and afflictions like cancer. There is a mysterious rejoicing that can be done because often cancer becomes the catalyst that grows us in our trust and dependence and undying love for Jesus. At the end of the day, as tough as this sound, is cancer not worth it if it brings someone into the absolute depths of loving Christ and being saved eternally by him? I went on a mission trip to Cambodia years ago. A girl was rescued from sex trafficking. She had been in it since she was three or four years old. She and her family were steeped in Buddhism. She was rescued, comes to Christ, tells her testimony in this way. I thank God that he allowed me to experience the tortures of the sex trafficking industry because I learned there and then that Buddha could not appease my hurt. He could not satisfy my pain. He could not help me in the deepest, darkest place, but Jesus could. And she came to Christ because of it. Glory, hallelujah. For the Jonas who are here this morning, if you find yourself in the belly of a giant fish, God is not punishing you. All of your punishment for those in Christ Jesus, every bit of our punishment was poured out on Jesus on the cross. He said it is finished for a reason. You are not being Jesus spanked, okay? If you find yourself in one of the most tumultuous seasons of your life, you who are in Christ, brother or sister, you are not being punished. He is further rescuing you. He doesn't want any remnant of poisonous self-dependence to linger in your heart. He doesn't want any spot of poisonous self-reliance and self-assurance and my life is all about me. He doesn't want that lie to keep permeating your veins. He's allowing you to be in a belly of a great fish for a reason to further rescue you. I've often said that it's the most merciful thing that Jesus would allow us to be brought to the ends of ourselves. Now, many churches won't ever preach that, and I'm not gloating about myself. It's just the Bible. But many churches will say, oh, God wants no difficulty for your life. He wants nothing but success. He wants to bless you in every way. Yes, he does, but not in the way we in our American dream mindset take that. He will often bring you to the absolute grave in order to bring you back up into real and abundant life. At the end of all of Job's affliction, to cite another Old Testament character, he went through affliction like we will never know. 
At the end of all of that, he looked at God as God was explaining that, Job, I owe you no answer for allowing certain things to transpire in your life. And Job, tasting the sweetness of being face-to-face with God, he said, God, before all of my afflictions, I knew about you, but now, God, I see you and I know you. And it was worth it to Job. Sometimes it's into the belly of a giant fish that is the most loving place for God to send us. And we're going to leave Jonah in the belly of the fish because that's chapter one. And next week is chapter two. And so let me encourage, I've, I've gone long, I apologize. Let me say this one last thing. I want to make the gospel, the good news, absolutely blatantly clear. That if you find yourself in the belly of a giant fish and you feel the world is caving in around you during this sermon, you are very well, very well aware of the sins that you're just running to Tarshish with in disobedience to God, he would say this to you by his Holy Spirit right now, that he sent his one and only son to come to earth to live the perfectly obedient life that you are not living, and neither did I. And Jesus' perfectly obedient life was then sacrificed in your place on the cross His blood was poured out as a sacrifice for your sin so that when he died, all of these sins that you're running to Tarshish with died with him. And then he was buried. We're going to get to that. He spent three days in the belly of a tomb. Foreshadow, foreshadow. He spent three days, rose to life, so that now those of us who call on him by faith and we say, I trust that your work on the cross was enough to absolve me of my sin, you can walk free today. And in the belly of the giant fish, there can be absolute real meaning and real purpose for you today if you would just trust Christ. I implore you to do it. And so if you have questions about that or if you would like to respond, please see me or Seth after the gathering. We would love to pray with you. Would you pray with me now? Most precious Jesus, thank you so much for the good news of the gospel. We thank you that because of Jesus, we can come and behold the wondrous mystery of your mercy and your grace. And I pray that if there are any who are here, who have a sense of Holy Spirit-granted conviction today in this passage, oh God, I pray that you would help them to respond with faith, and that they would learn to, today, sing even in the belly of a giant fish. We thank you for this text. Lord, be with us now as we continue to sing and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.